Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast 112. Today is Sunday, September 17, 2017. And today's guest is an American organist, Robert Moorhead. Robert is uh, a native of Pittsburgh and is the director of music ministries at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Vienna, Virginia. He began his organ studies at the age of 12 in Germany under the instruction of Tassilo Schlenter. For 20 years, Robert has held director of music positions in German, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopal and Evangelical Lutheran churches. Robert holds a Bachelor's of Music degree in organ performance from Malone University in Canton, Ohio. And uh, while at Malone, he received instruction from W. Robert Morrison um, and also earned a piano teaching certificate. Over the years, Robert has earned three organ certifications. D-Shine from the Lutheran Church in Germany, the Service Playing Certificate from the AGO, and the Kallex certification from the AGO. In 2007, Robert received his master's degree in music history from Westchester University of Pennsylvania, where he also earned a research award from the university for his work on the topics of Ralph Vaughan Williams's agnosticism. Robert's thesis was based on the jazz organ music of Dr. Joe Utterback of Rowayton, Connecticut. He also has played harpsichord and sang for the Renaissance and Early Music Ensemble Collegium Musicum at Westchester. In his free time, Robert is a freelance recitalist and composer performing throughout the United States and Germany. In this conversation, Robert shares his ideas about his organ practice, about his challenges that he has to overcome daily, about his music ministry. And you will learn about um, coordination between hands and feet, fingering, uh, him playing, and challenging your listeners when you work as a liturgical musician. I hope you will find this conversation inspiring. Let's go to the show. So, Robert, uh, I'm so delighted that you are uh, connecting with me across the globe right on different time zones uh, we are so, so many miles apart thousands of miles apart but probably we share one common goal one common vision this is a pipe organ playing right so yes absolutely <laughs> so much uh, robert and uh, i will be very eager to know about uh, your uh, organ playing procedures, your challenges, what you're currently working on, those things will be very delightful to know for our uh, audience around the world. Thank you so much. You're very generous. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be part of it. So, Robert, uh, uh, do you remember the time when somebody introduced you the pipe organ uh, when you were young and not not that you are old but little i would say in in your early days uh do you remember when you first fell in love with the organ i can actually remember that really vividly it was i i went to church to a church service with my parents um, in the pittsburgh area and i was enthralled by the postlude so I just walked up and I watched the organist playing the postlude. And ever since then, I was sold. <laughs> it's just, I was ready to start studying, but it took me a while to get studying. I didn't study right away. That was, that was the first impression I think that was made. And it's interesting because I've played a lot of different organs over the years. And it's a very small Schlicker organ um, that, so it had nothing really, it was a nice, it is a nice instrument. But you would think sometimes it takes this large instrument to convince. It wasn't that. It was a small instrument. It had a simple beauty. And I was just enthralled by watching the organist playing the postlude. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, of course uh, a lot of organists play only hymns and uh, not everybody plays you know extended toccatas for preludes postludes and preludes in the beginning of service so you were kind of lucky probably to experience this original organ music uh, right uh, right from the beginning i i would say so it was a small church so i'm i'm actually happy that i had that opportunity and that you know some churches most churches are good about this, but they allow me to go up and watch them play. And I mean, I'm the same way. I, if someone wants to watch me play, come up and watch after the postlude. Sometimes I put an invitation in the bulletin, just encourage people. Uh, so. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So how old were you then when, when this happened for the first time? Well, I'm a, I can only make a guess. <laughs> I would say seven or eight uh, and, you know, I, I actually started study when I was living in Germany but uh, before that is when I it actually was kindled or awakened the joy of playing the organ so I would mm -hmm. say anywhere between seven and nine how's that <laughs> that's a very formative year a lot of young people are very curious at this age right and whatever comes into our into our uh, horizon maybe will come out later in life with some fruitful uh, collaboration and creativity too mm -hmm. yeah and in fact from the um, what I did at that point was when I was eight so I think it's probably closer to seven is I started just playing out of keyboard books myself playing chords so just learning the harmonies and it sounds boring, but I had a lot of fun with it, uh, just playing C chord, A minor 7. And so today, it's really easy for me to hear harmonies because I spent all that time. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was how I started, actually, right after that. I just started playing on a keyboard. You know, there is a, a famous, I think, Austrian novel about the brother of sleep sleep um, about an organist it's it's not it's a fiction novel about uh, maybe it was like 19th century story or or early 20th century story about a village organist who was actually not an organist but discovered the pipe organ inside of the church village church nobody taught him about uh, the instrument how it sounds how it functions but he was so curious just as you you know he started mm. playing playing fooling around uh, with chords and improvising and even tuning this instrument at night and mm -hmm. later on he uh, participated in, in in a town in a big city for you know for a professional organ com comp uh, competition you know and mm -hmm. uh, and it was not successful at first but later in life he didn't give up and it was sort of a success story <laughs> so it reminds me <laughs> how you first also tried, tried to um, improvise those chords on your own, right? Just using your ears. Uh, yeah, and just using what I had. I mean, that's, that's the interesting, it's interesting part. When I look back, I think my parents had a Magnus chord organ, which is mm -hmm. its own little device in itself. And on that chord organ, you can actually push the chords. But I decided that I didn't want to do that. And I thought that was a good decision now in hindsight, because then I started learning the chords and how they were put together. So that really helped me, I think, later in life, the improvisation. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was, so I did take some steps right away, even though I didn't officially have lessons yet. But thank mm -hmm. God that happened eventually. <laughs> so what was about that postlude that captivated your attention? Um, maybe... Was it a toccata? Do you remember anything about it right now? Or was it like a... a, a <laughs> it's a long time ago. Um, I would say what my best memory was, I probably think of maybe three things. One was it was loud. I liked that. There was a power to it. Uh -huh. uh, the other thing was it was busy. There was a lot going on. Uh, there was just so much there to listen to. And it wasn't enough to do in one hearing. And I guess the third thing was watching, watching the organist, all the collaboration and um, techniques that, uh, that she had to use to play it. So those, I think those are the three things that stick out to me.
of course, the coordination too. Cool. Uh, of course, uh, virtuoso playing very fast, very loud at the end of the service is always very impressive, especially if, if an organist uses feet, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, what happened later, Robert? Uh, how did you decide to study the organ, um, you know, seriously and uh, it will be, you know, uh, like like enter a professional career as an organist. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it took some time actually. Uh, what happened with my family is my dad's job moved to Germany, so all of a sudden we were just moving to Germany after that interest was awakened. I guess I could say for the organ, and I just kept <laughs> kindly nagging my parents uh, that I would like to play. And I do thank my grandparents because they actually provided the money so I could take lessons. Uh, but what happened first was I had to take piano. So in Germany, I couldn't actually do organ first. They wouldn't let me, uh, which in hindsight, again, is a good thing because uh, you do need that piano technique. And I remember, uh, so I had to take a few years of lessons first. Uh, just to learn basic piano. And then after a while, I think it was two or three years, I went to a conservatory in Geisenheim and I uh, tried to play something for a teacher. And believe it or not, it was from um, the Kleine Preludium Fugen from Bach. Uh, I don't think it was the first one in C. I don't, I think it was the fourth one in F. Uh, so, and I am, um, I played it for him and he had a spinet organ in his office <laughs> and I remember him saying, I can't teach you, like, I can't teach you. So he pointed me or to an organist, another organist, local organist in Geisenheim, Tassilo Schlenter, and he began teaching me. And so I was very excited because at that point I could finally play the organ. Now, my dad was actually leading prayer in the Anglican church in Wiesbaden. And occasionally I would bring a keyboard with me to play for the services. So I already started service playing in a way sort of informally. Uh, I wasn't, I'm not going to say I was playing great, but I, I actually was playing single notes and just for leadership purposes. But it really got me started in getting used to how to play for service, how to respond in situations, things like that. Uh, so that's that's pretty much how it started, and and then Tassilo Schlenter, after I started with him, <laughs> what I was really disappointed about, uh, he started me in the Keller method, which a lot of students don't start in, uh, in this country at least. But uh, what I realized was that he said, well, I got a few pages in, you have to go back to the piano. So I had to go back to the piano for six months. <laughs> And it was, that was a very hard decision for me because you're young and you don't always have that patience, but I decided I'm going to stick it out. So <laughs> just remember all the hours in his studio apartment playing on the piano and he just had me do scales and arpeggios. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was thinking, when is this going to end? Um, so I, one of my great memories of that was I saw a piece on his piano, uh, by Billy Joel, and I said, can I please play this? I've been doing scales and arpeggios for like <laughs> four months. <laughs> and he said, okay, I can let you do that. And so Billy Joel has this like very <laughs> emotional significance for me in my life because of that. <laughs> but when I went back to the organ after that, it was amazing how much easier it was to play and having that technique as a backing. Uh, so I've carried that with me even till today that I, I still practice with technique. I'm still going to warm up when I practice during the week or daily. Um, even though, you know, I may know the scales, I still do it anyway, just so that I have that backing that I can fall back to. Mm -hmm. So, so when you first started playing the organ, um, do you remember what was your goal back then? What was your dream? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think to play. I mean, I know that sounds so simple, but just to play. 
and I can remember my first two pieces so vividly because of that. The one was in the Kleine Preludium Fugen. It was the second one in D minor. And I remember working on that over and over again. Da, 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 da. <laughs> uh, but just, just to play was, uh, and to play on these historical organs in Germany added so much to the experience. There was a certain aura that you felt in the space and it, it was just very special. Uh, and I, so I really just wanted to play. Now the organist that was teaching me on um, Tassilo, he actually did begin, he basically taught me like he would teach any other organist, which I thought was great. Uh, so uh, it was a little different because the hymn playing in Germany is slightly different than the United States where, where I was, I had to go copy the hymns if the church had a hymnal with all the parts. Generally, they just had melody line. So it was make up your parts. You just had to make it up. So this is where the chords came in very handy that I learned years ago. But also he taught me basic figured bass rules, things like that. And I learned right at the beginning. So he included him playing right away. Uh, so it's, I don't know. <laughs> it's a hard thing to... Um, to think about uh, what was your biggest challenge back then uh, as an organist? What was the most frustrating part for you? Coordination, absolutely coordination. Uh, and it, we have it more today. I notice in my teaching too with students is that there's just no sense of. I'm not going to say no sense because there there are always students that have it, but it's it's becoming less common that we have patience. You know, we have everything on the phone. We have everything so available to us. So that makes it more challenging, I think. Uh, so what was the question again? It was... You mentioned that the coordination, right? Between yes, coordination. That reminds me of the piece, the second piece he had me play, and it was because I really wanted to play it after he gave it to me. It was the prelude from Prelude Fugue Variation by Frank and that's a hard piece to do as your second piece, the prelude, because the timing of the pedal, and I remember working on that for months um, on end, but I really wanted to do that because I wanted to have that coordination and understanding of how to balance when I'm pedaling, how to shift my hands from manual to manual. That was, I think the determination there just carried me through because I wanted to be coordinated uh, so that was the biggest challenge. Uh, I didn't have so much fear about the pedals. I think I was more excited about them. So that helped. And of course he had me hymn playing. And when you're hymn playing, when you don't see the rest of the parts, you begin to trust your feet after a while, because if you hit a wrong note, you can always fix it, basically, <laughs> because there's no accompaniment there. Right. So uh, when, you, when you were playing Frank's Prelude, Fugue and Variation, was the Prelude for you more difficult than the Variation or vice versa? Or maybe left hand uh, passages in the Variation were, were more frustrating? Well, I, I only learned the Prelude first with Tassilo. That was like, so the complicated right. thing there was the timing. It was the rests and the pedal and those leaps. That's what I remember. Uh, now, I did actually finish the piece in college later. I would say some spots in the variation, some of the fingerings, that's probably the part I was challenged with the most. Because it moves, it, I, I think, more like water a bit towards the end. It's, it's a beautiful piece, uh, but it's just making sure, keeping my hand relaxed uh, so it can be agile to really finger well. So I think that was the major challenge. Uh huh. So what about fingering that 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 were uh, so um, uh, difficult for you uh, to to? Did you write down the fingering in this spot, or you make made it up on the on the on the occasion as improvisation? Well, I think at first I made it up. <laughs> just like most people do. Um, I think I've learned over the years different ways of making it work. 
I think writing in can be very helpful. Absolutely. Because then you know what it is. But I think that for me, I also need some other methods to make sure that I have other safeguards. So one is I also think of shape. I think of shape uh, as well. So what, and it can be anything. I try to be creative about it. Sometimes it's an animal or food or, and I try, I try to have fun with it. <laughs> uh, the other way is tactical. So, and I would just play it through, just get the feeling of it. Uh, and I know you recommend that in your um, suggestions too. And I agree. I mean, I remember playing on tables. I do that a lot. Um, I do that a lot at school too. And <laughs> it's a good way to spend time when you're, when nothing's really getting done during a class, like you're just waiting or something, you can just play through. Uh, so that tactical memory is really great. And another one that I employ is analytical. Um, and I've used that a lot with choirs as well. If I can, and you, you, I know you've done that too. Uh, great advice on that as well. Just analyzing it. And I think what's important as the performer is that I analyze it for myself. Like if I'm teaching it, yes, let's do the Roman numerals. Let's do everything correct. But for me, it's important. Like, what do I need to know? So it's not that I analyze everything. So it might be, well, I need to know that this is a B minor first inversion followed by this. And then I remember that going back and practicing that. I don't analyze the entire thing. So I think all of that together, uh, sort of, they all help each other. And then when one safeguard protects each one, so to say, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Uh, it's, it's basically... A um, systematized uh, method, yes? You probably not only played organ music, you played exercises, you played also harmony exercises, you improvised, you improved your music theory knowledge and in history too, uh, and uh, hand, hand and feet coordination. Everything put together resulted in a better, you know, treatment of fingering too. Everything mm -hmm. I think works there. Well, and of course it's, as you, you know, grow through music and you learn more, you realize the fingerings have to change too. And I think that's another thing is to not be um, meaning stylistically. It's different in different styles. Uh, and again, that's something that you have provided great advice on, like Baroque fingering and articulated legato, which, I mean, the fingering's going to be different there um, than it's going to be for romantic music. Or, so, mm -hmm. And... Uh we, earlier, a little bit, we were talking about hand and feet coordination, right? Mm, mm -hmm. What helped you to overcome this challenge in early days? I think him playing, believe it or not, <laughs> because there's such a faith to him playing because you have to trust yourself. I, I, it took me a long time to learn that because I wanted to memorize every part. And you can do that. But there's a point at least for me, that that was as far as I could go. Like if I, how is it going to be different if I see a hymn now and I have to sight read it? I can't memorize every part. I have to start trusting what I'm seeing. So I think that was the biggest step for me was doing the hymn playing. And of course, like I said, when I first started hymn playing, it was very hard to find four-part hymns. I had to take the book from the church, <laughs> go to the store to copy and return the book to the church. Like, and it had to be within a time frame. So I didn't have a day. Sometimes it was a few hours. And, and then I would work on the parts. I would also clearly mark lifting of parts. Uh, my teacher taught me how to do that. And I think that helped too with coordination because you also mm -hmm. listen differently when you're repeating notes uh, and it changes the way you play. Um, I also remember... Uh, my first hymn was Lobe den Herrn, uh, a very famous one. And I also remember, um, which is still my favorite hymn, Lobe den Herrn, um, Praise to Lord the Almighty. And then the other one was Wir flügen und wir streuen. Um, uh, unfortunately, I don't remember <laughs> in English. Uh, but uh, we plow the fields and scatter. There we go. It took me a while. Uh, but the nice thing about that... I was really challenged with that one. And that's how coordination, I think that was a key turning point for me because there's uh -huh. dotted rhythms in that refrain. And the dotted uh -huh. rhythms really set me off at first. 
um, really frustrated me because most hymns move fairly standard, like rhythmically. We're talking normal hymns, um, yeah. and they do. Uh, this one had those dotted rhythms, and that really forced me to test and it challenged my coordination because I couldn't think about the other issues. I had to have those clarified and set. So I think him playing definitely helps with coordination. And the other thing that some of my teachers taught me over the years later was just to uh, register him playing, I'm going to say on the fly, but making the changes as you hear it. And that's how I've been playing hymns for years. And it, it's just amazing playing that way because you, what you hear is what you're interpreting in the moment, even though I practice them in advance. And so that's made me more relaxed with coordination. Beautiful ideas, Robert, uh, because uh, a lot of times organists tend to neglect him playing, especially those who, who want to play real real, so to say, organ music, right? Preludes, fugues, toccatas, choral preludes. But hymns, hymns are what? Just chords, progression of chords. How they are interesting. They should be boring, right? But no, if you if you treat them as real organ compositions, right? They really help you advance further, step by step. Because it's very controlled environment, right? As you say, it everything moves uh, quite st straightforwardly. A little bit of syncopations here and there, but not too much. So you could you could really um, uh, overcome uh, hand and feet uh, coordination problem and fingering too a little mm -hmm. bit because no sure. position, uh, right? Because things are more close. Um, they're more. Um close together, particularly in the left hand, you don't have many leaps. Of course, there are always exceptions with hymns, but we're talking just standard um, general hymns. And so it can really be good for the left hand. I know that helped me because left hand was challenging for me at first uh, with repertoire because I'm more right-handed. and But now that's not so much of an issue. So. Did you use uh, a lot of pedals uh, in hymn playing? I would say yes. And I think, again, I'm thankful for having been thrown into the, <laughs> this is like I was thrown into it and I just had to play. And it sounds scary in a way it is, but in a way it's also a blessing because you don't worry because you're in the moment. It's like I said earlier, if you hit a wrong note, it's not really a wrong note because the congregation doesn't have the four part setting. So you're, you're making it up. Now, thankfully, I had some great instruction books um, about harmony that really helped with that. And so um, I remember the Hindu myth, but there was also one Harmonilera, which I don't even know the, the author of. But just going through those exercises, you got used to the style and it gave you a sort of a foundation. And then you could expand from that foundation and... I mean, that's part of how I also, this is a slight tangent, but also play hymns sort of in a jazz way uh, mm -hmm. because I had that um, understanding as well, just because I had, that's how I came to classical music um, in Germany. I kind of wasn't really interested in classical. I liked the organ, but I wasn't really excited about classical and it was jazz that actually brought me to classical, so. <laughs> I like uh, Hindemith's harmony exercises so much. They're my favorite. They're so simple, so practical with just a few rules, right? Mm -hmm. Just to start and you are off to the races, basically. It's, they are not dry, not very theoretical, but very practical and doable mm -hmm. for early beginners. Yeah, absolutely. So, Robert, um, you mentioned your early teacher. Who else uh, were a big part of your, uh, you know, influence uh, on you? Maybe could you name a few more of your mentors over time? Sure. Um, I think one would be my undergrad instructor, um, Robert W. Morrison. And he just was... Um, in many ways, just a blessing that I couldn't really see <laughs> at the beginning because he was he took lessons from Marcel Dupre and also from Virgil Fox. So I learned a lot of great 
um, material and instruction and technique from him. And um, Stephen Williams taught me a lot about interpretation. Uh, it's great to study in college, and I enjoyed it. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, but it's also important. It gets harder when you are out, and I'm, I'm a full-time church musician, so you have to choose to continue that. Or you can choose to not continue that. There's this saying in church music that you can only do one. So if you put all your effort into organ music, then you can't really do so much for choir. I don't really agree with that. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Uh, but I do think that there's some validity to it because we only have so much time. So you have to decide if you're going to put time to organ repertoire and hymns. And of course, I decided to do that. But he really taught me how to enjoy the music after I had that backing with technique and really to understand uh, interpreting it and to look at it as vocal music too, to think of it through other instruments. Uh, of course, Morrison taught me a lot about the symphonic approach, which comes from the French as well. Uh, but I didn't have that full understanding or time. Maybe just it was time was lacking because you're learning so much. Um, uh, the time to really enjoy the music and consider its vocal nature sometimes. Uh, so he really challenged me with that. And uh, one of the things I do want to say about Morrison was that he prepared me well for the church. I was mm -hmm. practicing maybe nine to 10 pieces at a time. Now that, that mm -hmm. sounds crazy, but he had me at all different levels. So I would practice something very easy that I would have done in one hour that I play for next week. But what happened was at the end of my study, I had 150 pieces for church services. So he prepared me for what I was to do. And I, I'm very thankful to him for that and really passed on some great knowledge um, from some of the French masters as well. Uh, let me say something very interesting. Uh, you mentioned that um, he taught you pieces at various levels of difficulty. Now, that's an interesting idea because a lot of times uh, we tend to teach students, you know, linearly and uh, mm -hmm. uh, start from the easier and advance, more advanced until, you know, Vidor and French symphonies and Duruflet and other things. Uh, but if you, if you integrate easier pieces in your week, then, of course, you prepare for church services much faster. And uh, when you play recitals, you don't have to play you know, all difficult music all That's the right. time. You can, <laughs> you can enjoy a slow adagio or cant cantilena or siciliana, something like that. Uh, so I think this is a very valid approach too. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I've taken that concept and I've furthered that in, in my teaching today with students and I found it to be very valuable. Uh, it's, it also gives you a chance to teach other composers too. If, because you could spend, I'm, I'm sure we could all spend hours and years on the masters and that could be all we do, but, and he did. I mean, I had to still work on major pieces as well, mm -hmm. but it was encouraging to me in my practice as well, because if I was frustrated in the moment, I could go back to a piece that, I may not have so much work on. And then I could go back to the piece that I really needed to continue with that challenge on. So that was great. Uh, he also allowed me to select some of the music I wanted to play, uh, which I thought was great. Uh, now, of course, I still had to play the standard repertoire. It wasn't that. And he also encouraged me to do the AGO examinations, which I thought mm -hmm. was very helpful as well because it does really test some of the basic service playing strategies and, and it makes you confident. So then when you're going into service, uh, now I already did do a Leistungsnachweis in Germany, which is sort of like a service playing thing, uh, which is a little different. So I already had some background on it, but I think all those ideas really helped shape me as an organist in the church today. Mm -hmm. 
So, Robert, uh, how does your normal week uh, in charge look like? <laughs> I'm laughing because it's always different, beat us. <laughs> it depends on the day. Uh, well, I do want to say this because it's important, and I, I mean this for all of us church musicians. We have to be intentional about practicing. So one thing I've learned over the years, and I've been doing this for like 25 plus years now working in churches, um, is that do it first. So I, and I, this is what I'm going to hopefully do after this podcast when I go to church, I walk in and I practice first because there's so much uh, time that you have to spend with other things that if you wait for that, then it usually doesn't happen. Now, then there are some days that you can't, with church ministry, you just, there's no way it's going to happen. But what I have done is 20 minutes is still valuable, just like 10 minutes. Even if you're just taking 10 to 15 minutes to run a section or two, uh, that's very helpful. So, okay. <laughs> Close the window because the dog was barking. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's... I think that's important. The first thing, uh, you want to practice first thing. And I also have made it a point with practicing to keep repertoire in for the worship services. Uh, so it takes some creativity at time, times because, for example, if you take Frank's second chorale, you can't play that as a prelude. It's too long. But you can split it up into three parts. Mm -hmm. And you could make it part of the worship service or prelude, postlude. So I really try to continue playing repertoire so that that doesn't get lost. Uh, and that, again, it's an intentionality that you have to have. And then after that, it's more, uh, a lot of time I spend in the week is connecting with people, particularly now. You have to track people's lives as volunteers. If I'm not connecting with them after every rehearsal, spending time with them, uh, they tend to remove themselves, unfortunately. It's part of mm -hmm. the changing culture, I think, in the church, at least where I am. Uh, and then, so a lot of times I'm making time for people. Uh, mm -hmm. If that helps. I mean, we could talk about this for hours because every week is different in the church. I mean, one thing I do say is it never gets boring. I mean, there, you can't ever be bored with what's going on in a church music ministry uh, and it requires a certain flexibility, too, that you just have to. So that's why it's so important to practice and plan almost first, even the rehearsal planning, all of that. Uh, so then you have time for people. I don't know if our listeners um, noticed the insight that you just said a moment ago about playing for church longer pieces but dividing them into chunks of episodes like Frank's Chorale into three parts, sections. Mm -hmm. It's it's so valuable, right? It's it's a magnificent piece, but it's, of course, too long for liturgy. But if you mm -hmm. really uh, think about it, every piece has the beginning, middle, and end, right? So you could mm -hmm. subdivide three parts and maybe sometimes add a cadence at the end of each part if, if it's if it doesn't end, uh, you know, nicely, maybe mm -hmm. we back, go back to the home key or something, uh, or add a little bit. But in Frank's case, sometimes it works just as it as it is, right? Absolutely, it's it's really easy in that one. <laughs> Some of them it takes a little more creativity, but it's something I've decided, and I've I think I've also learned that congregations, and this is the one congregations I've been in blessed to be involved with. I can't say this for everyone, but they want to hear good music and we shouldn't deprive them of that. But I also think we need to show and um, provide a variety. So I'm not going to play that every week, but I'm going to balance it. And one of my personal rules, it's the German in me, is thinking I always play at least one work of Bach every month, a big mm -hmm. work. It's just something that I do uh, because <laughs> I enjoy doing it, but also it keeps everything, the technique, there. Uh, but I also make sure to play different styles as well. 
So I, I want to continue to play from the Romantic period. Um, I want to play something based on a hymn tune. Um, yes, I have a background with jazz in the organ, so I play some jazz as well and contemporary music on the organ. I think there needs to be a balance. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the congregations want that. Uh, I've noticed that when I play the works of the masters, they, like this summer I did, and it's a hobby of mine, this is a hobby, <laughs> uh, is that I play Bach's um, Toccata in, um, in the summer. Mm-hmm. So the very famous one, uh, the D minor, right? Yeah, da, 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 that one. So, and I do it because I, this is, sounds a little weird, but it's not that I want to reward the congregation. But if they're making time to come out in the summer, it just seems to be more of a challenge today why not give them something to make them a little even happier? And it's amazing, the feedback from it. Oh, I love that piece. But it's, it's just sometimes playing those pieces at times when they least expect it. Another thing I like to do, it's one of my hobbies as well, is the Vidor Toccata. I know everyone plays it on Easter, and I do it every three years on Easter, but I like playing it on Christ the King Sunday because that's um, often around Thanksgiving in this country. And so some people are away, like, oh, well, you missed it. <laughs> but it's the idea that all of the music has value and that each Sunday is equally important. And I really try to view it that way. And it's, that can be challenging at times, but I really try to view it that way because, uh, first of all, because it's a worship service, uh, but second of all, everyone is important. So it doesn't matter if there's less people there or more people there. Why should I be bringing less just because some people are choosing not to come? Uh, So I've tried things like that, and it's been very well received by the congregations. And I I do also get the sense they want to hear new repertoire. So And they they want to be challenged. But it's our responsibility uh, as organists to do that. So I know some churches in the past I had to – play some of the French dissonance, which to me isn't dissonant anymore, but to them it is, to get that sound in their ears. So then, after a while, oh, it's not that bad. But they they just didn't realize, and it's not a bad sound, but it's perceived that way at first. Uh, So just really challenging. I mean, I've gone as far as playing John Cage, um, (laughs) which there's some great works there. And again, people talking about it, Vidas. So it's... We have to stay creative, I think, in the church, and that's important too. Now, when you play John Cage in church, for example, do you communicate somehow about the piece, about the composer, about this idea of, I don't know, aleatoric music, um, uh, avant-garde music? How do you communicate these ideas with people? Well, I'm careful when I do something like that. So this past year, for example, um, during the season of Lent, the church was studying a book. This was the first time I did it, but it was sort of a devotional recital series. I had Wednesday night recitals based on sections from the book. So I had program notes to explain what was going on in the John Cage piece. Because uh, you can't just sit down and play notes, repeat it, and hold them. Uh, but again, the response, I will tell you, was amazing. People were thinking about the organ, the way it was talking, the way it was responding. Oh, why are these sounds like that? It gave me a chance to educate people about the sounds of the organ, what it can actually do. Uh, they could certainly hear the difference between a reed and a flute, uh, because in John Cage's score, the one I played, um, as slow as possible, I only played one movement, uh, but you register freely. Mm-hmm. So you can register in the moment of however you hear it. Uh, so I only played one movement, but as part of that Lenten devotional recital series, I had program notes that explained what was going on. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm so glad you are always challenging not only your congregation, but yourself too. It's a, it's a, it's a really... A brave act to, to play those risky compositions in front of people, right? And and be. I agree. <laughs> I will tell you that I I feel that way. 
And then I talked to my wife and she said, oh, just go for it. So I give, I need to give her credit because she encourages me to do that. Uh, so she's, she's an encourager in that. But I've also learned over the years, at least for me, that I don't want to, it's not even depriving people of it, but it's educating is the key. So if we educate what we're doing and why we're doing it, I think it will work. I've had this issue with jazz because some people in the church feel like it doesn't fit at all. And I really, and even for the organ, some people don't think it fits at all. And it's okay if you disagree with me, <laughs> but I certainly think it fits. I mean, my thesis was on that. I've really uh, been playing jazz for years on the organ and it has a different way of speaking, but I also have to educate people about that. So they understand, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. You know, just like a lot of music that we would, uh, unfortunately in the church, they judge instead of really thinking, you know, this music can really reach in so many different ways. And that doesn't mean we should just avoid it just because of that. And believe it or not, jazz has that sort of stigma that I've heard over the years, oh, it's not appropriate to play in church and things like that. So I've, I've really worked, this sort of been like my mini mission of just getting churches hopefully to understand, like we need to look at the full body of music, like all the styles and try to give honor to each of them because they each have their value. Uh, and I think that's important. And, I, and that means going back as far as possible. I mean, if you have to go back to Maria Tzad, <laughs> I mean, play it. That's, that's me. I mean, and, and yeah, one week I want to do English voluntaries on manuals. The next week I'm playing John Cage. I know it's weird, but that's me. Uh, but I think what's great about that is congregation is hearing such a wide variety of music and it can reach in different ways. So... You know what I'm ad I admire about you, Robert, that it's you're constantly pushing the boundaries, right? Of, of what what's possible. You are expanding your horizons, and not necessarily in a very systematic way. You don't necessarily play, you know, Maria Zart, then Italians, then French, then Germans, then uh, going uh, yeah. through the centuries, right? It would be systematic but stiff method. It might mm -hmm. work. But you're, you know, spontaneous about it, right? Well, I do plan it. <laughs> I can't, I can't say that I don't plan it because, because I, I have to practice. Uh, but I do. I think it probably does come off more spontaneous than it actually is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, to me, it's a joy because we have so much. And today, with you know the internet and IMSLP and all the other websites, that's the big one, obviously. I mean, we can get so much of this music uh, and it's, it's not that hard. Like in the past, I mean, I ha you had to look through, I remember in Germany, I could barely even look at the music. I had to actually pull it out and buy it. So it was, you had to think about what, and now I think they occasionally let you look at it. So I, I need to tell the truth, but, um, <laughs> but you, it's harder and harder to do. So we need to, we need to be aware of that, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you like to compose music too? I have done some of that. I think it's more time that uh, gets in the way. Uh, I have two children, so that's part of it. And that's a priority for me. But I do think time, I tend to compose more for the choir out of need. Mm -hmm. uh, very much like all the other composers did because they have what they have, and it's best to compose for what you have. I have done some organ pieces. They tend to be more collaborative with other instruments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've done a lot of improvising, um, particularly on the piano, but I still transfer a lot of those ideas uh, to the organ. Uh -huh. Good. You, you combine improvisation, composition, piano, organ, uh, collaboration, it's very creative and rewarding experience, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the improvising. It can be scary, but I still keep doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, because if I don't, it's not that I lose it. I feel almost like it's something that I need to share. 
because it's a different way of your soul speaking when you improvise. I know you understand this because you improvise and I've heard your improvisations and uh, they've been really inspiring to me. So I, I know <laughs> you know what I mean because you're sharing yourself differently when you improvise. Yes. Don't you agree? Absolutely. On a good day, I start my day with improvisation. I even now have this uh, keyboard synthesizer, which plugs in into my computer, and I can improvise, and uh, Sibelius notation will <laughs> transform oh, <wow>. it <laughs> with, with difficult and strange and crazy syncopations, of course, and then I have to clean it up. But, yeah. but <laughs> too. Mm -hmm. Sort of, you have to let ideas out because otherwise it's sort of, uh, you're not living fully, right? You are maybe uh, living uh, com other composers, you're eating other people, people's music, right? Your ideas, but you're not uh, transforming through your own mind, right? You're not yeah. letting them out into the world for people to judge or something. Um, I think we have to be brave about that, at least at first, right? It's really scary at the beginning when you sit down on the bench and a bunch of people are looking at you, right? And you don't yeah. know what... <laughs> it's very risky. I you... could not agree more with you. Uh, my first time, I really did, like, serious improv. Like, I've done... I mean, I had to do it as part of degrees in the past. And... I'll be honest with you, you can sort of memorize and get through yeah. that. And, no, it, and no. I don't mean that disrespectfully because that has a value to it. But <laughs> the first time I remember really doing it was there was a Sunday many years ago. And I just felt whatever you all think. I felt God was encouraging me to do this. So I went with it. Um, take the scripture verse of the day and I want you to interpret it musically. And mm -hmm. I tried it. And it, I was scared as ever <laughs> because I had no idea of what I was doing. Uh, I just, and what I've noticed for my improvisations today, and I don't know if you do it this way, but I tend to have at least one idea to begin. And I have that one idea and that's all I take. And after that, it's really, truly all improv. Uh, and I've also noticed that of course, the cadences and all of that training that I had initially that from the Keller book and also some of the chords uh, that I learned like around eight, because I did get my first keyboard when I was eight. I do remember that. Uh, that really has helped my improvisation today because I can hear the circle of fifths or I can hear that surprise chord or you can hear that Neapolitan, you know, so it's it's a little different. Uh, so it makes it a little easier but it's no less scary. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I know, I know, Robert. I also started with uh, memorized improvisations and even written, written down, uh, written out improvisations, maybe blueprints, maybe yeah. um, I tried to copy the style of other people, right, uh, of the masters, maybe imitate uh, the models of other compositions. Um, and maybe, of course, integrate my harmony skills. All these things are very classical. But then somehow I started to switch into the free realm, not, not so much planned, but mm -hmm. spontaneous as, as, as we are now talking, right? We haven't re rehearsed and memorized our speech, no? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we are communicating and sharing stories. So I have only one rule today which is telling stories. And uh, it, it has to be interesting, that's it. Uh, if it's interesting, it might work. And my, when I'm improvising, I have to be constantly aware how does it sound in the room and in the time frame, you know? Is it, if it's interesting for 30 seconds, it doesn't mean it will be interesting three minutes later. You know, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Changing things and building arcs and uh, repetitions, recapitulation, thinking long term. It's really storytelling, but in musical terms, too. I, I would agree. And I think one of the other things that I've learned over the years is just using registration. The sounds of the organ a lot of times can 
win so much time. Instead of coming up with new ideas, just changing the color of the sound, what it can actually do in the moment. And it doesn't have to always be drastic. It can be very slight, but that's helpful. Yeah. And always be uh, sort of unpredictable. The more unpredictable you can be, the more people will pay attention to your mm -hmm. playing, right? I agree with that as well. Wonderful, Robert. You are so creative, so brave. I'm so happy that we met. <laughs> keep, keep creating, keep sharing, and keep challenging yourself and your congregation. And um, before we end, uh, Robert, could you give our listeners uh, a link where they could, could find you and your work online? Maybe your church's website, maybe you have a website or something. Could you share? Yes, uh, sure. I have a website. It's um, www.rmorehead.com. And it's R-M-O-R-E-H-E-A-D. So did I spell that right? I think so. Um, R-M-O-R-E-H-E-A-D. Rmorehead.com. And that's, yeah, there's some, I do um, try some different things on there. I have hymn of the week and I've been doing this every week. Um, I take a hymn from the Evangelical Lutheran hymnal. I give a little background and I play it. Most of the time it's on the organ. I would say probably 80 to 90%. Um, the other 10% it's on the piano, uh, but that anyone can subscribe to that on YouTube. Um, I know the church has really appreciated listening to that before Sundays. Uh, I also have some other things on the web page, some organ stuff, and people are welcome to check that out. Wonderful. You are sort of inviting people for a journey, right? Uh, to listen uh, long-term those uh, hymns of the week with you. And um, it's very, very educating, I think, too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, I, it depends on the week, but I will also do some text painting sometimes with the way I play the hymns. I explain that a bit. Uh, sometimes I demonstrate it. So, yeah, I'm, I was encouraged by someone at the church at um, Emmanuel Lutheran to do this. Uh, it wasn't my idea, but I've grown through it and it's been very rewarding, even for me just to do. So I've been keeping it every week, so I'm trying. <laughs> And Robert, how, how can people find uh, your church's website? Could you spell it out too? Sure. Uh, that would be ELC Vienna. So it's ELC and then Vienna, V-I-E-N-N-A dot org. So www.elcvienna.org. It's in Vienna, Virginia. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll make sure I'll include your website and church's website into the description of the podcast conversation and people will click and visit you and say hello perhaps and greet you and uh, keep in touch with you and subscribe to your YouTube channel as well. So thank you so much, Robert. You are so brave and creative. Keep sharing ideas with the world and the more value you create around you, the more value will come back to you. Well, thank you for your encouragement. And I do want to thank you um, just very briefly because I did go through your entire sight reading Bach program. Amazing. And that Thank was quite, that was quite, that was quite a challenge towards the end because it was the art of the fugue and I remember doing it, but I, I want to encourage you as well to continue what you're doing because it's not very easy after you graduate from school to have always find a teacher, particularly when you have a family and you have a church job and the income can be challenging. Um, to provide ways to teach and for students to learn when they can't afford a teacher. And I've been thankful to have teachers that have worked with me on that. And I thank you for what you're doing too. So thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. When I created Organ Sight Reading Master Course, uh, it lasts about uh, nine months, right? And, yes, uh, <laughs> it took me longer. <laughs> it was so crazy because uh, all the... All the gurus out there, right, who, uh, who taught, me, taught me things how to teach online said, uh, the best thing you could do is three months, maybe 12 weeks, right? People will get bored after that. But now nine months, it's crazy. But I think uh, the course is very systematic and I didn't want to break it up into parts. I wanted to, to, to go over the Art of Fugue uh, entire cycle, you know. And uh, not too many people manage to stick with it, but those who do. 
it's those, hard to stick with. <laughs> we'll be honest with you. But it, it, it really did help. I mean, I turned to Bach, and it was easier after I did it. And I do remember you sending the bonus. It was, was it Brahms or Rieger? I think it was Rieger. Rieger. Yeah. The 30. I already knew them, but uh, it still, I, I thought it was very much worth my time. And I certainly did not have the income at that point to, to pay for a teacher. So it really did help uh, for me to keep, because I want to keep strong and I, I do want to keep learning. So it was very helpful. So I hope, Robert, you can, you will keep uh, teaching other people now. Now that you know so much about organ playing, now you can share your own experiences and even uh, take them even further, right? Yes, amen. So be it. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much. Have a great practice today. Okay. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> if you liked this conversation. I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavichus, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.